It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but MIDI Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. sightings reported around the world every month. 90% of these sightings can be explained, but 10% cannot. Officially and unofficially, the U.S. military has been investigating UFOs since 1947. Their top secret goal is to find out what's behind these unexplained sightings. The Pentagon classifies them as unusual airborne anomalies. But a better term is X-Files. Join us as we explore these unsolved cases, UFO incidents that baffle even the U.S. military. This is Mac Maloney's Military X-Files. And now, here's Mac Maloney. Well, welcome to a very special edition of Mac Maloney's Military X-Files. This is Commander Cobra speaking for Mac Maloney and the gang. Let me read to you after I open the sealed orders that Mac has sent to me regarding what is going on tonight. With me is Steve Switchblade Ward, and the orders read as such. CC, switch. Break off, main formation. JJ and I are on a secret mission. Complete show. Try not to break anything too expensive. Max sense. Switch. Yes. You have any uh, any uh, illumination? Any more background on what's going on here with the secret mission and what what happened? You know, we show up to do the show. He's not here. JJ's not here. It's just you and I. Any, well, uh, it, any word? It, it, as you alluded to, uh, it, it doesn't. It, it, at this point, it doesn't seem like Max show because usually it's what t- twenty or thirty minutes in just to do the intro. So yes, that was yes. Uh, well, that was a bit well, abbreviated. But let us play proper honors to okay. the Mac Maloney uh, methodology here. 
And first of all, Commander Cobra talking to you from the compound, which uh, used to be considered a bunker, but for tax purposes, I have changed it over to a compound. In the uh, great state of Maine and the Northern Territories of New England, I'm speaking with Steve Switchblade Ward, longtime uh, known as the national correspondent for this show, an investigative reporter and author in his own right in the paranormal world, a uh, military veteran. And of course, Steve, let's knock it out of the park early for those that want to uh, to know what did you have in preparation in the culinary arts for tonight? I had three pieces of bacon, one scrambled egg with shredded cheese, and two pieces of toast, buttered. What with type of toast? Hot black coffee. What type of toast? Uh, what type of bread, you mean? Yeah. Um, uh, I don't know. It was uh, – I think it's some kind of like wheat bread or something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, Excellent. I don't I don't pay much attention. It's bread, you know. Right. Okay. Well, you're not a uh, not a connoisseur in the, uh, the various breads. I, I'm for not a connoisseur our, at all. For our guests that are waiting to come on air, I'm sure that there is in the virtual green room some snickering going on with this discussion. And maybe we at some point can explain to them uh, the importance of getting that piece of information out onto the airways early on. Folks, we're very fortunate tonight to have uh, uh, one guest that you know very well because he, he appears on Mac Maloney's Military X-Files frequently and is a very, very good friend of uh, all of us and on the show. But uh, two of the people that you do kind of know about in using Mac's words, as you have often heard us speak, especially when Mac talks about it in very loving terms, he refers to Ross Sharp. And those mad Englishmen that are rebuilding a UK, in the UK, a fighter bomber that is known as the Mosquito. And we have talked about this in the past, uh, and we have had updates on in the past. But tonight, we're very fortunate to have two key members of the uh, the leadership and good friends of mine as well uh, to come speak to us. So let me get down the roll call here so that we can get this thing into the air and start uh, doing the, uh, the formation routine. John Lilly. He is the directing manager, chairman of the People's Mosquito. John, good evening and welcome to McMullen's Military X-File. Oh, good evening. And how are you? Excellent, sir. It is wonderful to have you here. And it's been a while since we've chatted on air to talk about TPM uh, yep. and all the great things that are going on. Also with us is Wing Commander Bill Ramsey. Uh, Bill is the director of operations. He is uh, one of the most distinguished pilots I know of. And has an incredible flight resume, which includes uh, tours in the Vulcan bomber, flying fast jets, as it's referred to in the RAF, and he was a leader of the Red Arrows. Bill, good evening, and welcome to Mac Maloney's Military X-Files. Good evening, everybody. Thanks very much for having me along. Uh, By the way, in preparation, uh, I also uh, had a a pre-flight meal of bacon and coffee. Oh, excellent. Now, we're practically related at this point. See, we're showing that the uh, cousins in the colony are uh, doing very well. And I should note that uh, um, Bill and uh, John obviously are coming to us from the U.K. And Ross is uh, in another part of New uh, New England. He's in Massachusetts. And we'll be talking to him in a second. And I omitted to uh, bring up the fact that Switch is up there in the great state of Michigan in the Battle Creek uh, area of Michigan. The uh, land of flakes, as uh, Mac likes to say. That's what right. that uh, said. Go ahead. I'm sorry, Bill. Uh, in, in the summertime, we have to keep our windows shut because the snap, crackle, pop is so loud. 
Well, especially after something like rain, you know, you have to be very cautious about that. Absolutely. <laughs> Ross Sharp, yes, sir. director of engineering for TPM, longtime command presence here at Mac, Mac Maloney's Military X-Files. Good evening, sir, and welcome, and thank you so much. Thank you very much, Commander. And in full culinary disclosure mode, <laughs> I, too, had a pre-flight meal. There were three fried eggs. Oh, and some baked beans. You will note that no bacon was harmed during the making of that culinary exercise. Well, we'll know that Zeppelin will be very, very happy to hear that. <laughs> and for John and Bill, that Zeppelin is the new addition to the uh, to the Commander Cobra squadron here, and uh, he is my baby pig uh, that has been with us now for four months. No comment. I noticed the, uh, the very, talk about the ham. Please. The very classy silence as they are. <laughs> Just be careful. Don't get Ross Sharp talking about gerbils. <laughs> oh, yes. Gerbil and chips. <laughs> That's an in-joke, gentlemen. Yes, it sounds yeah, like right you know, maybe we'll have a chance to get to it. Well, one thing I do want to, before we dive into uh, the show proper here, is that I wanted to bring up the fact that uh, at the time that we're doing the show is very close to the uh, to the passing and internment of Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh. Uh, to me, one I think one of the classiest folks that uh, great warrior, as far as I'm concerned, outstanding uh, husband and father from everything that I know. No, no details beyond what I had seen, but uh, talk about a member of the greatest generation, someone who uh, who uh, walked it and talked it, as we would say here in the colonies. Um, very, very clearly, and he uh, he never really grabbed a lot of fanfare, but he had, in, to me, incredibly important impact uh, to everything uh, that uh, to his people and to the uh, into the crown. So I, I really wanted to just take a note in, in honoring uh, the fact that I have uh, three members, uh, uh, three subjects, I would believe is the proper way to say it, and uh, I want to get that note. Thanks, Commander. That's. Uh... That, that's uh, uh, really kind. You, you, you're right that Prince Philip, uh, I, I think, played a role uh, in our monarchy, which is maybe not understood, but he, you know, in the end, he was a father and a husband to our queen. So he was behind her, yeah, all the way for all those years. So and a tremendous guy in his own right. Yeah, absolutely. I, I just, I'm, just, I stagger when you find out some of the details of things that he did in combat operations, and then. Uh, in his service uh, as a uh, as a member of the royal family, and I think uh, a textbook way of executing uh, the uh, the responsibilities and role in a very complex world. I think he's just was that kind of uh, that kind of guy. I think, Commander, one of the unsung episodes uh, of his naval career was when he literally saved the ship, HMS Wallace, uh, when he was uh, first lieutenant. XO in U.S. naval terms, um, was off Sicily and was being bombed at night by a series of uh, German aircraft, I think JU-88s, and there had been several near misses, and, and obviously the, the the ship was about to be hit for six, and uh, prior to the last run, um, uh, Prince Philip and the captain worked something out, and they quickly assembled a wooden uh, raft on deck with a couple of smoke floats at either end and threw it overboard. And when it hit the water, the smoke floats ignited and sputtered and gave off flames and masses of smoke. 
and the ship sprinted away from that and then went dead in the water. And lo and behold, the JOHA came back and bombed the raft. And uh, it was said afterwards that undoubtedly his quick, the uh, Prince Philip's quick thinking and actions uh, saved the ship and those on board. A tremendous story, and it doesn't surprise me in the least that it's attributed yeah. to to him. It, it, just the, the ways that people have spoke about him in service with him, and I, I'm going to extend that to the rest of his to his son and to his grandsons. Their time in the military, um, a few people over the years that I have met that had served uh, with them uh, spoke the same way. So he obviously made sure that that was instilled in them when they put the uniform on. So tremendous. Switching slightly off gear here and into it, uh, John, a lot of people don't know much beyond the Mad Englishman um, <laughs> moniker that has been placed on you by uh, Mac, uh, that uh, what exactly we're doing with this Mosquito Project. I mean, we, there's a there's a million stories behind what is going on with this, uh, this project. And it, to me, it just it absolutely is uh, joyful to me. The, the, the kinds of people that are getting involved, but you have a unique, uh, you, you are the reason that we're all together working so hard on this and have, and have had the success to date. Give a, a short intro to the folks, what drove you to do this and how you sent off the first Twitter message and, and what, what happened with that little spark? Well, I guess it follows on from talking about His Royal Highness Prince Philip. And I guess well, I, I hope, well, I hope, and I speak for myself, but I, I do know it because I, I see it in my colleagues in Ross and, and Bill and all the guys involved in the team. We have this British spirit of that we will we will get something done. You know, we will achieve, we will endure. You know, and we, and, and I guess there's a spirit as well that comes out of the Royal Air Force, which Bill could probably talk to, is that, and particularly about the Mosquito aircraft itself and when it was operated, is you know. Um, when people say it's impossible, we have this attitude, well, give me 24 hours and I'll deliver it. So we don't accept things are impossible. And, you know, that, 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 that's something I've been brought up with in, from, from my forefather, also served in the military in the British Army uh, as well, and also my relatives that served in the armed forces in World War II. And, you know, again, that story that Ross has eloquently talked about there, where the Prince is quick thinking, he didn't accept they were, their fate, he didn't accept it. So that's, that has been part of my guiding principle. In, and I guess it's a bit of a psyche, that, uh, you know, not just me, but also obviously you guys as well over there in the United States. We don't accept we can't get things done. There is an answer. We don't, you might not know it today, but we'll find it out tomorrow. And it's that spirit of never giving up, isn't it, I think. So that drove me. And, and also as well, what drove me was that this aircraft – when we come come back to it, was became uh, the first multi-role combat aircraft, and these are sort of terms that you know you commander will will know about when people talk about things like the F-18 Hornet, you know, uh, F-16, our Tornado uh, aircraft jet fi uh, fighter fighter bomber, which Bill flew, the Mosquito. You know, wasn't designed that way, but it, it, it nurtured in that way as well. And it was also using ingenuity of, of engineering, something, again, Prince Philip drove. And one of the things that not is he really got behind engineering and innovation. And the fact there was a quote tonight in British television, he said, if God did not invent it, then an engineer did. 
So, um, and and, and I, that stuck with me tonight before we came on the show because I think it, we all can appreciate that one. Um, so that, that that was my driving force, and and that and also because this aircraft, apart from being you know the odd static ones in um, in museums, and we do have there are many of them around the world. Not so many. I think you could count them on one hand. But the you know until recently there were no flying examples in the world, and there certainly aren't any flying today. And one of my beliefs is that the way that you can demonstrate, remember our forefathers, you know, um, is to build something and and get it operational, and that tells the story. But it's also is a story of innovation, which you know I could spend an old, and Russell tell you you can spend you all two hours about you know. Mm. The aeroplanes and, and uh, radio frequency, which we now call microwave technology, you know, and the fact that this plane was flying electronic countermeasure operations, all these things that we kind of thought about, you know, in recent wars and stuff like that. But again, it's also to inspire young people as well and, and young engineers and young people into aviation. So with that, um, I decided to do something about this missing gap in our history. There you go. It's beautiful. And, I, you know, you were doing some volunteer work um, with the uh, with the aircraft and with restoring aircraft. You sent out that yes. Twitter request and you had overwhelming response. People just reacted to it. And I think that the Mosquito is just a very unique airplane that embodies that. Um, and I've spoken about this with Ross a number of times to take advantage of a number of, of uh, incredible skill sets that were there. In Britain yes. at the time of World War II, to you to take advantage, um, we say composite. Uh, composite is how uh, Ross uh, has been instructing me to say it. But to build <laughs> the a that, to take advantage of materials that were there to make such a effective aircraft is amazing. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. Amazing. Yeah, I mean, obviously, the, the thinking of the day was turning to aluminium monocoque style fighter aircraft. Absolutely, and bombers at the beginning of World War Two were. Tw- yeah, we're predominantly all twin engines. Um, armed, ours were only armed with three or three machine guns, which I think uh, you Americans affectionately called us pop guns, right. compared to 50 calibers and stuff. And yeah, they were expected to fly, you know, uh, unescorted. Fighter escorts were not really heard of at the beginning, flying, doing daylight operations, but um, and, and, and basically come back. But what, what de Havilland did, or Jeffrey de Havilland, the owner, and, and, and basically the guiding light around the, 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 the company, saw that he had a vision of a light, unarmed bomber, but made from wood, which was completely against the conventional thinking. And almost you can almost hear people at the time going, you know, is he mad? Are they mad? Sort of thing. Um, but you're right, it, it was able then to bring in a whole new workforce of, you know, as, as Hermann Goering famously said, look at the British. They, they make a fantastic aeroplane out of wood using piano makers, cabinet makers. And what can you nincompoops do in Germany? Nothing. You know, so if it gets the envy of one of the leading Nazis at the time, who was an evil guy, you know, then, and that's great. So, yeah, this design was different thinking, different skill sets of people, bringing them in. But also it allowed the aircraft to be built in modular form, not in one place. You, right. the, 
Yes, they had assembly factories around the country, but suddenly you could outsource this to different parts of the UK. And that is so difficult for an enemy to keep striking against, isn't it? You could keep moving that production around, you know, uh, as very tactical as well. And there's a story, I mean, the aircraft nearly did not get into service, and there's a whole story behind that. But, yes, I put a, I put a tweet out, and I was also influenced by an aircraft that Bill will talk about later, which is the uh, Avro Vulcan, the Cold War 1950s-60s nuclear bomber. And a UK team had raised money to take basically a retired RAF bomber, just recently retired out of service, and uh, basically get it registered on the civilian registration for display purposes. And they'd done that by raising money from the public. But there's also a legacy from World War II, um, during the dark days of World War II, everybody needed money. And I know that this happened in the United States called war bomb tours. Well, we had things like Spitfire funds, for example, or mosquito right. funds, where basically people were encouraged to donate a few dollars or a few shillings, in this case in England, a few pounds, you know, whether it was individuals or businesses or even communities and even Commonwealth islands out there, basically donate, raise money, to build, you know, for the war efforts. And that happened all over the world, including the United States. So with that principle, and with the fact that the Vulcan to the Sky team had done this, and they'd raised 25, 26 million pounds to get a complex V-jet bomber, I thought to myself, I'm going to do the impossible. And I put out a tweet around about um, winter 2012. And yeah, I've got about 45 guys coming back saying, I'm on board. Let's go. And the rest, they say, is history. And we'll, we'll, we'll bring the history up to speed here. Uh, as we're coming up towards our first break, I want to bring Bill in. Bill, you represent, I think, probably the most important um, viewpoint that I want to get tonight. Uh, and, that, and that viewpoint is you are a, a career RAF officer, aviator. And explain to me what something like the mosquito means to the uh, to the history and to the understanding of what uh, I, what, what we have embodiments in the American Air Force of, of what bombers and fighters mean. Uh, we have legendary uh, uh, people that uh, have risen up uh, you know at different times. To me, the mosquito seems to have a, an incredibly strong presence in the RAF, but not. Uh, not highly visible, not highly uh, celebrated. Am I am I right or wrong? Uh, yes, I think you you make a fair point. Um, the, I mean, to put it in what we call yeah the, the pantheon of great uh, British Merlin engine airplanes, everybody knows the Spitfire, everybody knows the Hurricane, uh, everybody knows the Lancaster, so single engine Merlin, four engine Merlin. Uh, the Mosquito was a twin-engine uh, Merlin airplane, so it sits between them. It was uh, there was some seven and a half thousand of them made. I think Russell put me right if I'm wrong there. Uh, they weren't. They, they were uh, seven hundred eighty-one. I, I just knew he'd put me right. <laughs> they, um, they were essentially designed as throwaway airplanes, disposable airplanes, which. Um, Actually, just to fast forward, because I'm sure you guys follow the technology, the, you know, the loyal wingman program that I know you guys are into, and so are we, uh, to our disposable airplanes, aren't they? Yeah. 
I'm sure they'll be around for 40 years. Anytime you put disposable, I've flown two disposable, quote unquote, airplanes uh-huh. in my career. And when I got them, they were over 20 years old. So uh, yeah. a lot of times those disposable airplanes uh, tend to hang around. But but that was it. I mean, I, I mean, uh, John's kind of covered the, the, the basic principle of the, uh, the uh, using different materials and using uh, innovative technology. But but the top thing was it was supposed to be faster, quicker, higher and higher than the opposition. So it, it was not going to need guns because it was going to be too fast. And of yeah. course, for much of the war, it could outrun uh, any fighter on either the, the, the German side, the Axis side, or indeed our own. Uh, it was only with the advent of, uh, I think, probably the very late model FW-190s, but the, the jet fighters, right. uh, the Messerschmitt and the 262s, that any, anything could catch the Mosquito. Uh, and, of course, the Mosquito, like all, all great great aeroplanes, was developed out of all recognition from yeah, first flight to the end of the war. So, so let me it, Oh, I'm sorry, sorry. I'm going to interrupt you because I want to ask you one thing because I think you're you're up against the edge of, of the point I'm trying to make, though. To me, there's something very um, direct in the relationship of what the Mosquito means as an aircraft that went to combat, how it came out at some of the darkest uh, times, uh, showing the greatest spirit of everything, engineering, uh, all uh, just the enthusiasm and the talent. And to me, it's it's almost a nearly perfect embodiment of what the RAF in World War II was. I mean, carrying on a fight that most figured you could not, you weren't going to win, and to come out of that, and to come out of that with a with a punch. And we'll talk hopefully in the next half a little bit about some of the I think absolutely spectacular missions that the Mosquito pulled off. I know I've mentioned a number of them over the years on uh, Max Show here. Uh, that that captures, but am I right in saying that uh, that this aircraft, because of just what it embodied, does capture what you would call the spirit of the Royal Air Force? Because to me, as an outsider, it sure does. Oh, oh for, for me, you know, when, when I got involved, and I don't know how I did exactly because I wasn't really a Twitter person, but I heard about it and I knew that I had to support this this uh, effort. Uh, but whenever you talk to any any military or ex-military pilot in the uh, from uh, the UK, and you say which airplane do you really think we should get flying again? You will always, always get the answer: the Mosquito. Uh, and and I, that's kind of. It. I mean, it's. Um, I, I don't know. I, I'm nicking this from a member of the opposition. I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with Adolf Gallant, really famous German. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. He was his famous quote was: yeah, "Only the spirit of attack, born in a brave heart, will bring success." And, and maybe that you could say that about the guys who flew the mosquito as well. I, I think it, I think it's absolutely fitting, and I think that's correct. Ross, Sir yeah. Ross, explain how you were pulled into this universe, and then oh. you can always. And in ten seconds, we can talk. You met me at an air show, and you had me signed up. I was practically signed up on the tarmac as we were talking. You were. Um, but we'll go into that another time. Now, seriously, I, I was blessed, that's the only adequate way of describing it, uh, for a number of years to be involved uh, with the Royal Air Force's largest uh, air show event, uh, the uh, Battle of Britain at Home Days. And the first time I actually saw Bill Ramsey fly was at one of those events, and he was flying X-Ray Hotel 558, the, Vol- the Avro Vulcan, and I thought, my God, that guy's smooth. And uh, anyway, 
I met him a few years later, and, and my reaction was, "My God, that guy!" Is cool. <laughs> uh, but but no, seriously, it's, um, I, I was inspired by what the, the tweet that John wrote, and uh, I, I wrote to him and I said, "Look, if you haven't got a, a tame engineer on tap, um, you know, this is what I've done. This is the resume. Uh, let me in, please. You know, I beg you. This has got to be done." And uh, everybody, every single member of the board, um, uh, everyone that's been involved from, from our director of finance, uh, Alan, uh, to Steve, our marvelous uh, marketing slash IT slash Mr. Everything guy, uh, <laughs> to Mark, uh, the trading company, and so on and so forth, um, everybody, without exception, uh, is inspired, is driven by this vision of getting that mosquito back in the air for Britain. It's it's part of what we are. Simple as that. Well, I think that that's probably one of the most eloquent ways it can be stated. To me, I am taken, obviously, when you are a geek like I am for these particular things and absolutely love the mosquito and have had a uh, an affinity for it, even as a small guy. Uh, we had a famous uh, television program that would come over on PBS from Britain the war at world. Oh, excuse me. The world at war, not the uh, not the H.G. Wells uh, special. Um, we, of course, though, another British import that had uh, interesting effect here as well. I should note on the side, they had a small section in there talking about the mosquito. And it 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 locked on for me because I was just I was just taken by the fact that you could create something that fast, that capable. And then as the years have gone by and I've learned the different roles and missions, I can't think of another aircraft that I know of that could possibly have covered all the missions that it did as a bomber, as an interceptor, uh, doing night uh, work with radar, to be a fighter bomber, um, to do uh, wa uh, over open water work for, uh, for uh, sea denial and, and naval support. To be an airliner, I mean, uh, it was working as a, a British uh, Overseas Airways airliner uh, to provide a, an incredibly important piece of, uh, of uh, diplomacy as well as uh, capability with the neutral countries. It's just it, phenomenal to me. And it, and it soldiered on, flew on for a number of years afterwards. If I may come in there, Commander, you talked about its design and inception. So kind of when they got the go-ahead for the first kind of like, you know, first small contract for a bomber stroke recon. You know, the idea was around in the late 30s, but the real get-go, you know, the real sort of like, you know, here's the approval, one year to first flight, one right. year. And we, and we just celebrate that here in the United States with the NGAD, uh, a very uh, secretive program that we have, the Next Generation uh, Air Defense Fighter, that is uh, – uh, they went doing this. And to me, it seems to emulate what uh, de Havilland did with the lack of de Havilland not having computers and math lab and all the other fantastic things that we're doing. But they created that uh, in a similar way. Uh, to me, just an amazing, uh, amazing aircraft all around. And I think that's what draws people to it. And we're getting up against our first break here. So let me just run down the list of who's with us tonight. Uh, John Lilly, Bill Ramsey. Retired wing commander from the Royal Air Force, Ross Sharp. Uh, I practically has a chair here in the Mac Maloney Military X-Files. And my wingman tonight, or my am wingman to him, 
is Steve Switchblade Ward. We are on a special edition of Mac Maloney's Military X-Files. Mac and Juan Juan and the rest of the gang are off on a secret mission that we have not been told many details to. So that should be an exciting uh, debrief when we all get together to compare notes on how uh, our operations went. Please stand by. We'll be back in a couple of seconds. Do you know where the world's most secret bases are located? Do you know what spooky action at a distance means? Is there a conspiracy by aliens to prevent us from conquering space? And where is the best place in the United States to see a real UFO? Find the answers to all these questions and more in Mac Maloney's new book, Mac Maloney's Haunted Universe. Visit places you never knew existed. The Hampton Tunnels of Tokyo, the UFO Trail in South America, Ong's Hat, and the very mysterious M Triangle. Mac Maloney Haunted Universe contains hundreds of reports on ghosts, haunted planes and ships, weird celebrity deaths, mysterious sounds, and a breakdown of every monster in America, state by state. You've heard him talk about it on the radio. Now get all of Mac's paranormal research in one large volume. Mac Maloney's Haunted Universe with a forward by the very famous Juan Juan. On sale now in your local bookstore or on Amazon.com. Hello, this is Commander Cobra of Task Force Griffin, KGR Radio, KGRRadio.com. And I need you to be a member like myself of the People's Mosquito and help rebuild and fly this great aircraft. I have three friends here today also who are going to ask you the same thing. Consider becoming a member of the People's Mosquito. Hello, I'm John Lilly. I'm the Managing Director of the People's Mosquito. And I'd like you to donate or support our flying program. Hi, I'm Ross Sharp. I'm the Director of Engineering of the People's Mosquito, and I'd like you to help us rebuild this magnificent aircraft. Hi, I'm Bill Ramsey. I'm the Operations Director and Tame Pilot of the People's Mosquito. I need you to join us and become my wingman. Join all of us and be a supporter of the People's Mosquito Program. Thanks. I was in the hospital with my son for 18 months. When he got injured, I wasn't prepared, but I knew I had to be strong. When I was told about John's injury, I was in complete shock. I just remember rushing into his room and giving him a big hug and letting him know I was there. These veterans and families are just a few of the heroes we serve at Homes for Our Troops. For thousands of severely injured veterans, everyday life is filled with barriers. It was really the, the little things throughout the house. Counters that you can't roll up to. I drag my wheelchair down steps. I want to help but he is so determined. At Homes for Our Troops, we build specially adapted custom homes with features like wheelchair access, roll-in showers, and automatic door openers that allow them to function independently and focus on their recovery and family. This house is freedom. It's hope. It's a new beginning. This house has given me my family back. To learn more, visit hfotusa.org. UFOs are found in Renaissance art, on ancient coins, and etched on cave walls. They're even reported in the Bible. But more surprising is when UFOs are seen the most in times of war. 
Through centuries, thousands of UFO sightings have been made by high-ranking officials, military pilots, and ordinary soldiers. Often, these fantastic appearances occur at the height of great battles. From World War I to D-Day to Korea, Vietnam, and beyond, military investigators are baffled. Why do UFO sightings spike so drastically during wartime? Could it be mistaken aircraft? Or is someone, or something, looking in on us? In UFOs in wartime, what they didn't want you to know, Mac Maloney chronicles centuries of these incredible sightings and tries to solve the puzzle of why so many UFOs are seen while humanity is at war. Read about the scare ships, the ghost planes, and the ghost rockets, alien giants in the jungles of Vietnam, UFOs controlling our ICBM bases, dogfights with flying saucers during the Gulf War, and more. 300 pages of unbelievable stories, along with many startling photographs. That's UFOs in Wartime, What They Didn't Want You to Know, by Mac Maloney. On sale at your local bookstore or on Amazon.com. Welcome back to Mac Maloney's Military X-Files, a very special edition of Military X-Files tonight because Mac and JJ are away, which is probably crushing a great deal of the audience. Hopefully our numbers won't be too low, Switch. But with me tonight, (laughs) Switch is with me tonight, coming up to us from Michigan. We already have talked about the culinary uh, impact, but I think it's an important point that I wanted to bring up. I have a... I, all I had for preparation for the show tonight, in honor of the, uh, in part of the honor with the folks and partially my heritage growing up, is I had a large cup of tea um, coming in for the show. So I think it's pretty appropriate. And uh, I know that uh, later on, Bill will probably make a remark that I'm making up for, oh, small indiscretion in the 1700s where a bunch of countrymen threw some uh, tea overboard in Boston where I'm originally from and uh, kicked off a little fuss or two that we had going on back then. But I have a very special uh, note for everybody, and most of the folks on uh, well, in, on the U.S. side of the show know uh, of this. Uh, Switch uh, departed here this summer with uh, a large liter container of it. Parnon Estates is an olive oil that's being imported uh, by a very good friend of mine in from Greece, from his family into the States. And it is phenomenal. Absolutely some of the best that I've ever had. And I'm trying to give them a quick little plug uh, for folks to take a look at. It's P-A-R-N-O-N-E-S-T-A-T-E-S.com, Parnon Estates. They have uh, phenomenal products there. The olive oil, which is their mainstay, unbelievable. And uh, talk about health benefits as well as just fantastic taste. And uh it's uh, it's a real it's a really special uh, group of people behind it. So keep that in mind. And I wanted to throw that in there because after this uh, recording and after this show's done tonight, I will be using it as I prepare a meal for tonight for Mrs. Cobra and myself. With that said, let's talk about my our guest tonight, John Lilly, director of the People's Mosquito, Bill Ramsey, wing commander, retired RAF, director of operations, and the director of engineering and airframe compliance. Our own beloved. Ross Sharp, who is practically a fixture here on the show anyways. Ross, we were talking with you last as we were coming out, uh, or rather going into the break. Coming out, I want to start with you. Give me and uh, and everyone here a thumbnail sketch of the absolute incredible 
database and information that has been compiled of the people's mosquito. There is an unbelievable series of fantastic events, in my opinion, that have come together uh, on this. And then when we get done with that, I have a couple questions from people over the last few months that have written me directly, Commander Cobra, uh, at my email, to, uh, to about this mosquito project. Go ahead, Ross. Okay. Well, I have to say straight off the bat that uh, this project would not uh, be as successful as it's proving to be if it wasn't for the actions of one Mr. John Lilly Esquire, star of stage screen and this radio, um, in rescuing uh, at the point of a wreckers ball what turned out to be a treasure trove of 22,300 technical drawings uh, on microfiche that were being uh, scrapped or the building they were in was being scrapped um, uh, in North Wales. And he made a mad dash cross country and picked these drawings up in black garbage sacks because that's all that they had to hand at the time and brought them back to the HQ, uh, whereupon they were piled on uh, uh, one of our members' kitchen table uh, in a pile eight feet long and approximately seven inches high. And people say, what are we going to do? Well, the answer is that John and co. arranged for them to be digitized and saved for posterity. We still have the originals, of course. And then some lunatic had to go through these one by one and <laughs> assess them <laughs> and, and categorize them as to whether they're okay. And uh, it took me about four months working up to 12 hours a day. Um, but it was good fun and well worth it, and then handed all this marvellous information over to our, um, well, how can I say, wizard engineers, our retained builders, Retrotech Limited, uh, under the uh, able guidance uh, uh, of Guy and Janice Black, um, who were able to take this and start producing work packs. And as we drag the money in, and every dollar we get, and every pound we get, goes towards building uh, another component for for the fuselage uh, molds or, or some now some internals that we're starting to work on, like instrument packs and so on and so forth. Um, so it's just fabulous. It really is. It's, it's driven by the people. That's why it's the people's mosquito. So, so that's the, 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 literally the thing that initiated it. It's like the initiator in a nuclear device. It went off bang after that point. Sure it did. And I, phenomenal. Uh, again, to me, it's another incredible um, uh, backstory to you're talking about blueprints that were put on microfiche, fairly old technology, um, and then from there being digitized and brought up to the current uh, you know, way that we do business in the age that we do that. And I think it's incredible when we talk about, as we were talking about earlier with Prince Philip and his dedication to what we call STEM here in the United, in the United States or the colonies, uh, that we, we, we need to have material available. I can only imagine someone that's uh, just kind of banging around the Internet will stumble across the site or stumble upon uh, a collection of, of these uh, paperwork or working on something and find some original documents from the 1940s showing the uh, the layout and the uh, the design engineering just recently 
because uh, I, I serve as the handmaiden to uh, to Ross when it comes to giving the lectures and briefings. And I tell you now, for all members of TPM, he continues to uh, absolutely bring the house down. He did one uh, recently to an organization in the uh, greater Boston area uh, through a mutual friend of ours, and it was just absolutely warmly received and just rave reviews by a group of what I consider very, very tough engineers that were just absolutely blown away by Ross's capabilities on that. But I've given a couple briefings on the Mosquito to a number of Civil Air Patrol cadets because I think that's one of the most important missions that you can do is to, is to, is to spark that interest. And it doesn't have to have everyone end up in a cockpit flying the airplane, but Dawn, I would say that that's probably, you know, the, the reason that you want to, but there is so much to be caught up in um, what this airplane is doing, what the people's mosquito project is doing. And I I'm just, I'm ecstatically happy that, that we could get that. Bill, let me ask you a quick question here. Um, that will on my long list. There's a designation. Well, I guess this is open to anybody. The designation DH-98 is seen on the website as well as R-249. What do those two designations mean in regards to the project airplane? Okay. Uh, well, D. Havilland, DH-D. Havilland, I guess model 98 uh, Correct. is just the type, uh, the type, the type name, yeah, Mosquito, so I guess it's like a you know, uh, F-16 and Viper. So right. So similar to that, uh, RL-249 is uh, the military serial number for one specific aeroplane. Uh, RL-249, uh, as you know, was a, a, a post-war night fighter um, uh, in the same way that X-Ray Hotel 558 was the Vulcan, uh, the Vulcan which I flew. So, so it's like it's like the it's like a registration on your car, and that's important, uh, Ross, because that's the uh, the basis of how you work the certification to get this airplane uh, back uh, and certified when it's when it's completely rebuilt. Yeah, John will back me up on this. I'm sure um, we had a, a conference, a full on conference. So John and I were expecting to just have a nice. <laughs> A discussion meeting, as John would tell you, and we found ourselves when we reported to the Civil Aviation Authority headquarters at Beehive House in Gatwick Airport, uh, we were ushered into a very large conference room. And I looked at John. I thought, well, this is a bit large. You know, what are these people? Uh, who are we meeting? And before we knew it, we found ourselves facing the chairman of the. the um, uh, airspace, uh, sorry, the, the uh, SRG as it was then, it's now the SARG, um, and SETA Regulation Group of the CAA, the chairman, there was the head of the legal branch, there was the head of material sciences, there was a, uh, not the head of propulsion, but he was on, on leave, there was his deputy head of propulsion mm. and others. It was full on, and we had to mm. literally hold our own for a shade over two hours, I think it was, John. And That's in right. front of the chairman, there was a huge bound copy. It's about five inches thick of uh, CAP Civil Air Publication 553, which is the Bible for the um, uh, building and operation uh, of aircraft in the United Kingdom. And uh, the chairman got up and uh, towards the end of things, and he tapped the front of the book and he said something to John and I, which was quite profound. He said, gentlemen, 
you will notice I didn't have to open that once. So we knew we were in at that point. So that was the start of the project and, and the big surge forward from then onwards. I tell you, tell if you, you guys could uh, figure out a way to uh, to uh, uh, patent that or put it into a bottle, uh, there's thousands <laughs> of people that would love to have that uh, you know uh, that capability because it to me it's it, it's un, unheard of. But it just it it's in line with this project. It's in line with the people that are are, are leading the project and then contributing to it. Someone's going to say, "Go ahead." I was going to say the um, the formula. I guess if you what I thought of was, I've got a great guy in Ross who knows his knows the regulations as they are today but also understands the design and build of the aircraft from yesterday. Right. And with that, Ross, uh, with the help of Bill as well, let's bring Bill on this. Well, I, definitely. What they've championed is to make this the rebuild or the re- – we call it a remanufacture here um, – you know, to be as safe as possible. So that not only because, of course, safety is absolutely paramount to everybody's flight. Whenever you fly a glider to a helicopter to an airliner, you know, people people know something goes wrong. It goes wrong quickly, and it's not a good end. So everybody's focused on that. And and but with that in mind, then is in preparation. So with Bill and Ross getting their heads together with their experience, you know, their knowledge. You know, we went in. And we had, a, we had a game plan to share with them. We just went through the game plan and said, take any questions. And like Ross said, we expected two people and we were told we've only, we can only give you 30 minutes. <laughs> yeah, two hours, you know. Um, but that then instills confidence. When you've instilled confidence in your authorities, when you've got your business plan, because we need £8 million to do this. Right, roughly today, it might, it might grow to nine million because of inflation and other things. Time, you know, but it's a lot of money today. You know, absolutely a lot of money today. And um, and so once you've got that, and you go out to the put when you're going out and saying, "Please give me your pound or your dollar," you know, one of the things you have to do is give them confidence. You know what you're talking about, but also in this case, the authorities are confident. And not Absolutely. only, yeah, uh, you know, and, and not only that. Anybody that flies in this aircraft, you know, we want it. We want it to be there to be enjoyed and enjoyed for many years to come. And we're planning to have a good, a really good, you know, two, three decades uh, airframe life. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. When when this baby goes to the museum, she will have a a, a long and distinguished flight career. That's that's the uh, the toast. Uh, on, yeah. on, on my lips on every drink. Switch, what do you think of all this? You coming from the silent service, you've been uh, thrown into the uh, into the flying arts with me quite a bit. What do you think? Well, of course, there's jokes about submarines with uh, screen doors, and uh, <laughs> I don't know about wooden submarines, but uh, that probably would not work. But I but I wonder, you know, you've uh, uh, you, you're doing this from uh, you know from scratch, and there are so many things that don't exist. Uh, to make yeah. this work, uh, can you give us an example of some of the obstacles that you came up against and how you solved them to make this project work? Yeah, the first one is the fuselage, and uh, for any, anyone listeners that know mosquito, the wooden fuselage is made on a mold. So you have this mold. You have two halves actually. You make two halves. So guys, I, I guess it's revel in your country, but you made model kits as kids. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yep. 
Yeah, yeah. So if you if you make making model kits and everybody at home, you got this in your head now. You would glue two halves of a fuselage together to make the fuselage for your model airplane. You know, so in real life, that's a mosquito. You need you have two halves and glue them together. To get the two halves, though, you need a mold. Yeah, you need molds to the profile of the fuselage from the where the tail section starts to the nose. Yeah, and then a big gap for the wings, and the molds. The key, the New Zealanders have got, there are three flying mosquitoes restored in the world. They spent about 10, 12 years bringing back molds. And we could have had the, the, the fuselage made over there. But with this drawings, this bonanza of getting all these drawings together, we found what's called the lofting drawings, which is a, a naval term, actually. You know, uh, basically, how, and, and it's also got bulkheads, which is another naval term. Things like this, but these these lofting drawings enable uh, Retrotech are appointed engineers, as Ross mentioned, and aircraft remanufacturers, who, by the way, hold all the UK civil aviation manufacturing and engineering licenses. So that's important for the confidence. And I've made some brilliant aeroplanes. But from that, we were able to make the first molds, and we are currently finishing them off for this aircraft in seventy three years. So. As you said, the reference there, going back when this aircraft goes into a museum, with the moulds there, Commander, you can make another one. Because wow. the, the ingredient to Mosquito is the fuselage moulds. Because once you've got them, you can reproduce, reproduce, reproduce. And, you know, and, and you're off. And we've also got the, the wing jigs, the tail jigs, the Bombay doors. We've got all the tooling. It, it's all there. And now we've got the drawings, which we've digitized. And so that was the first obstacle. And we did it because the, the secret was the drawings. And then using CAD as a modern thing, we're using CAD to check the profiles. And we're also going to use a thing called a pharaoh arm, which Ross might tell you what, what it is in a minute, which basically does a laser scan as well. So we're using new technology to ensure the engineering is spot on. Another example, you're right, the parts are not off the shelf from 1940. They're just not around. There are some things you can still get. Funny enough, um, tyres for the aircraft are still available. But certainly some of the more, uh, the, the Mosquito did have metal fittings as well. The, the rudder pedals were magnesium. So we're also getting around that because we've got the drawing, and we've got a volunteer who does uh, is doing all CAD work to make the castings for these things. So again, but we're also searching the world for actually you know new old stock material or things that we can refurbish. And yeah, it's it's limited, uh, but again, because you have drawings, or you can go to a museum and scan something now with modern technology, there is an answer around every problem. Excellent. There you go. Uh, you say you're from you're from you're, you're submariner. I take it, yes. 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 Yeah. Well, the the mosquito also came in what we call the, the, the there was various marks, various types of the aircraft. A famous one was what's called the Mark 18 mosquito, but it was also given the nickname of Tetsi after a very nasty fly. Yes. <laughs> yes. Fly. Yeah. Well, the Tetsi carried a six pound uh, fifty seven millimeter anti tank gun. 
and um, it uh, had the ability. It, its role was anti U-boat and anti anti shipping. <laughs> oh, great! Yeah, and there is switch. We switch still is always excited. Well, the, 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 the yeah, I'm guys. sorry about this switch. I'm sorry about this switch. But, well, well, I was uh, one of the good guys, so I'm not worried about that. As long as you're okay, the bad great. Guys. Well, there you go. But uh, the weapon was designed to. And we still have a veteran today, uh, uh, Flat Lieutenant Des Curtis, DFC, still alive. He's 98, and he flew as a navigator over the Bear Biscay. And um, we've got a YouTube channel, and we did a three-hour kind of presentation on our YouTube channel, People Mosquito. Watch that, folks. There's a bit with Des Curtis in it, and he tells us how they used to fly basically at 60 feet across the Bear Biscay and using, funnily enough, broken code from um, uh, the Enigma machines. They kind of knew when the, and there was a channel where the U-boats needed to surface. Um, but they were going at 60 feet. They would be flagships protecting the U-boat. They would pop up to a couple of hundred feet and then do a shallow dive and let rip with uh, this uh, 57 mil, which had 22 rounds that could fire one a second. And then they were banking away because uh, they were meeting 20 mil, 30 mil flak commander, which I, I guess you would appreciate. It's not nice stuff coming at you. No, it's not. But I want to drag uh, Bill in on this <laughs> because you brought up the YouTube channel. And I'm glad that you said it because it's on my checklist. Um, the People's cool. Mosquito has a YouTube channel. Great programs. We also have a number of seminars when we get together um, that, that present a lot of incredible uh uh, first-hand accounts, as well as updates of what's going on with the program. It's a really uh, phenomenal way to participate. Uh, Bill, with your uh, extensive tactical aircraft experience, um, are you in the same company with me in the uh, absolute adoration of the fact that uh, these airplanes could take a lot of punishment, stay together, and were easily, in relative terms, repaired, put back into service very, very quickly? Uh, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. I, I was just going to say the switch is a, is a a piece of solidarity that my last airplane, the Vulcan, had two periscopes. <laughs> so, uh, so we have something in common. Uh, yeah, you're right. I'm, and I'm sure you'll have seen the uh, battle damage, you know, particularly to uh, rudders and tailplanes on uh, mosquitoes, yeah, like many other airplanes, with, yeah, airplanes which came back with massive, massive holes in a in a you know, a, a primary a primary uh, control structure. So yeah, the um, and you're right. The, you know the machine. But you know, I go back to you. I mean, the idea was that I think um, Russell put me right if I'm wrong. I think the airplane wasn't really expected to serve for more than about six weeks for us. Uh, something of, of that order. Uh, there was also a, a great problem that it was predicted by the experts in inverted commas that it would catch fire easily, which turned out not to be the case. Yeah, so yes, it was, but yes, I mean, light materials, skilled craftsmen who could mend pianos and cabinets and stuff for lords and ladies. Uh, yeah, I don't, I, you know, uh, mending the hole made by an 88 millimeter cannon, I guess, was, uh, uh, you know, child's play for them. Yeah, but well, joints, were, ahead, joints were the actual order of the day. And when you wanted to convert a mosquito, all you did, say, for example, from a bomber, uh, in one case, to a high-altitude fighter, you took out your trusty saw and you sawed the nose off at the appropriate point and grafted a new one on. Uh, it was that convertible. Well, Ross, you bring up one other thing that's on my list to, to bring up. 
and it's incredibly strong airplane. Um, took advantage of some uh, great properties of some very uh, special wood uh, that uh, produced a great uh, weight to strength to weight ratio there. But the wing box design that de Havilland had come up with um, is almost to me as uh, in critical or important as the fuselage, the, the capsulated fuselage being brought together. I mean, it, to me, it's just tremendous. What I've flown a couple airplanes that have that, that emulate that same kind of characteristic that it puts all the, uh, the shared uh, demands of, you know, high G flight, high speed flight, uh, and, and does it with a, a lot of elegance. Yeah, there are some interesting um, design features um, on, on the aircraft. For example, uh, the wing itself is is very strong, as, as you mentioned. It's got a double skin of plywood on on the top surface, separated by spacers. It's a single skin on the bottom. Um, the whole wing itself is carried on a, um, a, a pickup structure that's made of walnut wood, uh, which is incredibly strong. And it's held onto the fuselage by just four large bolts. And the fuselage itself um, is the wooden monocoque structure, a sandwich with balsa between um, birch or, or spruce three-ply, and then reinforced at various places by, by uh, spruce strengthening uh, parts. And also uh, there are seven bulkheads involved laterally down the length of the fuselage. And also as the fuselage diameter reduces, then the uh, plywood skins of the fuselage uh, uh, cease to be laid immediately fore and aft and start to be laid uh, in a spiral form at 45 degrees. So you're going to 90 degree bent uh, um, top and bottom sandwich, but they're at 45 degrees and being able to take a, a greater load of the, of the tail group. Um, a brilliant piece of design. Uh, there's no doubt about it. Um, uh, so Jeffrey Havlin and his design team took the parts that they think they didn't need, such as the gun turrets, the extra crew, uh, the extra fuel to carry the extra crew and the gun turrets, etc., and just reduced it. So you had an aircraft that had um, that was just 40% more wetted area, as they call that's the outside area exposed to the airstream, 40% more wetted area than a Spitfire. With twice the engine power, right? They, they, they definitely embodied what is now very popular when we talk about agility and some of the other uh, engineering and uh, business practices. They had their goal defined and worked backwards from that uh, to build the design to get to it. I mean, and it 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 wasn't evolutionary; it was a revolutionary leap that they took there, no doubt about it. Mm-hmm. Now, John, uh, why I have you here? Uh, it wouldn't be replete if we did not have a, a little discussion about you flying the Vulcan. Um, John. Uh, John. John, excuse me, Bill. Uh, um, yes. Uh, sorry about the Vulcan. Uh, sorry about that. Um, you uh, you did a masterful job with it. Another great uh, uh, presence on YouTube for anybody that wants to see some incredible uh, uh uh, information and scenes about uh, flying it behind the scenes. Uh, give us a little talk about that because I, uh, I I love the airplane. Another one that I was greatly taken with in my uh, early on in my flying career, 
and I do want to make quick note that I believe that the uh, the the chapel window, if I saw the last update, uh, has been uh, completed. Is that correct or nearly complete? Uh, yeah. So actually, your second question, you're, you're talking about the stained glass window at the it's the village church at, at uh, in the village of Scampton, right? Uh, which is uh, just next to the the RF station. Uh, they have raised. Uh, a lot, a lot of money to replace the ma the main windows by the altar uh, with uh, a pair of uh, stained glass windows to commemorate uh, the people who served uh, at RF Scampton, which is a station which is going to cease operations in about a year's time. Uh, and on those windows, they put uh, some of the airplanes that the station is famous for. So the Lancaster, everybody remembers from 617 Squadron and the Dambusters. Uh, the Vulcan, which is actually Vulcan X-Ray Hotel 558 because Vulcans were stationed there for many, many years. Uh, and uh, the Red Arrows, who are the, the, the current people who are there. So, uh, yeah, so that, that window is, is very nearly finished and all things being equal, they're hoping to have them put into the church uh, by uh, late summer, I think, this year. Uh, as for the Vulcan, I mean, it's interesting. We, yeah, we're talking about the revolutionary advance in aircraft that um, the Mosquito represented. Post-war, you could argue the Vulcan was pretty similar, um, bearing in mind it's a, an Avro aeroplane, so from a different but equally famous stable, Avro manufactured uh the Avro uh, Lancaster, which again, contemporary of the Mosquito. Uh, but only 11 years after the uh, Lancaster first flew, the first Vulcan flew. Uh, it was a four jet, not four piston. It could fly twice as high, uh, twice as fast, twice as far as the Lancaster could. It was a Delta Wing aircraft for those who don't know it. So an unusual shape uh, for the time. Uh, and specifically designed to carry uh, the, the British uh, nuclear weapon of the time, which, uh, like many others then, was a very, very large weapon. Uh, is that what you want to know about the, the Vulcan or just all flying it? Oh, no, I, I, I think a lot of folks uh, don't know uh, about it. And, of course, your time uh, flying it is uh, is well-documented. And we're coming up against the, uh, the end of this, our next break. So... Um, I did want to make sure that I got mentioned. I think the stained glass window project is uh, was a really uh, touching and uh, a really nice thing that uh, got uh, done. And I was actually able to contact the uh, the church directly, uh, and, uh, and and had some nice uh, conversations with them uh, via email. So it's a great project, and I if think I'm it's going to be a fitting way. Yes, go ahead. It's the time to just tell you real quickly in the churchyard there. There are something like uh, fifty odd, oh, more than that actually. Uh, RF people who uh, right. gave their lives in that, but but also there are four four German crews from I think it was a Junkers 188 intruder Ross, yeah. Uh, yeah, which had a crew of three. But one of the ground crew asked if he could go along for the trip to see what happened, and uh, he was so he was shot down with the crew and died along with the rest of them, which is is I find really touching. And, and the fact that they're all uh, were rendered with honors into the same graveyard. Uh, it, 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 it bespokes a lot of different aspects of what goes on uh, in warfare, in, uh, in, in the human struggle. So I, I think it's a, it's a, it is a fitting thing to, uh, to make point of. So as we come up against this break, um, two things I wanted to bring up. But first, my eternal thanks to both of you 
for uh, staying up late and uh, talking to us from the UK and giving us the update and urging people to join the People's Mosquito. That's the peoplesmosquito.org.uk. Just put it into any search engine, you'll arrive and, uh, and join that. Second point that I wanted to bring up, um, by the time this shows this airs, Mac, JJ, Switch, and our guest producer tonight, Skywatcher, will all be members of the People's Mosquito. I've made a, a commitment to uh, the organization that I each month uh, I'm trying to put up uh, a membership as a way to uh, boost uh, membership in numbers. And uh, that's my small contribution to the effort this year. To, uh, to get us uh, oh, another step closer. And one last point. Uh, to me, nothing embodies this better, especially when you get into the paranormal aspect that uh, Mac uh, and w- what we bring on this show. The Shepherd by Mr. Forsyth uh, is one of the greatest uh, short books you can read about military flying aviation, and it has a great ending. Obviously, most people who have followed me in the past know that it is my Christmas Eve tradition, because the story takes place on Christmas Eve, um, uh, to uh, to listen to a recording of that done by the BBC. There's a, there's a couple also great episodes of it out there by Canadian Broadcasting and a uh, book on uh, tape CD uh, rendition of it as well. Fantastic. Uh, Mr. Forsythe is a supporter of TPM. And uh, John uh, and, and Bill, I thank you very, very much for joining us tonight. And, thank you. Uh, and, le- and I thank you for your leadership and your continued uh, commitment to, uh, to keeping the... Uh, the mad Englishman on target for getting the mosquito back in there. <laughs> Thanks, Cobra. Thanks, Switch. Uh, thank you. Yeah. It, was, it was great sharing time with the mad Englishman. And yeah. uh, a lot for, of pleasure. And for you gentlemen to know uh, on on uh, UK Paranormal, Switch uh, has a show that uh, makes the uh, makes the airways there. So keep an ear out for that as well. The high strangeness factor. Okay. Well, we appreciate the invite. Thank you for your time. Thank you, gentlemen, as always. Okay, folks, we'll run to a break. Mac Maloney's Military X-Files. It is a uh, small show tonight with Switch and myself in a two-ship formation trying to drive this through. I think we're keeping Ross on, and we're going to be coming back right after this break for a very special fringe report with Switch. Please stand by. where the world's most secret bases are located. Do you know what spooky action at a distance means? Is there a conspiracy by aliens to prevent us from conquering space? And where is the best place in the United States to see a real UFO? Find the answers to all these questions and more in Mac Maloney's new book, Mac Maloney's Haunted Universe. Visit places you never knew existed. The Hampton Tunnels of Tokyo, the UFO Trail in South America, Ong's Hat, and the very mysterious M Triangle. Mac Maloney Haunted Universe contains hundreds of reports on ghosts, haunted planes and ships, weird celebrity deaths, mysterious sounds, and a breakdown of every monster in America, state, by state. You've heard him talk about it on the radio. Now get all of Mac's paranormal research in one large volume. Mac Maloney's Haunted Universe with a forward by the very famous Juan Juan. On sale now in your local bookstore or on Amazon.com.
Do you know where the world's most secret bases are located? Do you know what spooky action at a distance means? Is there a conspiracy by aliens to prevent us from conquering space? And where is the best place in the United States to see a real UFO? Find the answers to all these questions and more in Mac Maloney's new book, Mac Maloney's Haunted Universe. Visit places you never knew existed. The Hampton Tunnels of Tokyo, the UFO Trail in South America, Ong's Hat, and the very mysterious M Triangle. Mac Maloney Haunted Universe contains hundreds of reports on ghosts, haunted planes and ships, weird celebrity deaths, mysterious sounds, and a breakdown of every monster in America, state by state. You've heard him talk about it on the radio. Now get all of Mac's paranormal research in one large volume. Mac Maloney's Haunted Universe with a forward by the very famous Juan Juan. On sale now in your local bookstore or on Amazon.com. Hello, this is Commander Cobra of Task Force Griffin, KGR Radio, KGRRadio.com. And I need you to be a member like myself of the People's Mosquito and help rebuild and fly this great aircraft. I have three friends here today also who are going to ask you the same thing. Consider becoming a member of the People's Mosquito. Hello, I'm John Lilly. I'm the Managing Director of the People's Mosquito. And I'd like you to donate or support our flying program. Hi, I'm Ross Sharp. I'm the Director of Engineering of the People's Mosquito, and I'd like you to help us rebuild this magnificent aircraft. Hi, I'm Bill Ramsey. I'm the Operations Director and Tame Pilot of the People's Mosquito. I need you to join us and become my wingman. Join all of us and be a supporter of the People's Mosquito program. Thanks. I was in the hospital with my son for 18 months. When he got injured, I wasn't prepared, but I knew I had to be strong. When I was told about John's injury, I was in complete shock. I just remember rushing into his room and giving him a big hug and letting him know I was there. These veterans and families are just a few of the heroes we serve at Homes for Our Troops. For thousands of severely injured veterans, everyday life is filled with barriers. It was really the, the little things throughout the house. Counters that you can't roll up to. I had to drag my wheelchair down steps. I want to help but he is so determined. At Homes for Our Troops, we build specially adapted custom homes with features like wheelchair access, roll-in showers, and automatic door openers that allow them to function independently and focus on their recovery and family. This house is freedom. It's hope. It's a new beginning. This house has given me my family back. To learn more, visit hfotusa.org. UFOs are found in Renaissance art, on ancient coins, and etched on cave walls. They're even reported in the Bible. But more surprising is when UFOs are seen the most in times of war. Through centuries, thousands of UFO sightings have been made by high-ranking officials, military pilots, and ordinary soldiers. Often, these fantastic appearances occur at the height of great battles. From World War I to D-Day to Korea, Vietnam, and beyond, military investigators are baffled. Why do UFO sightings spike so drastically during wartime? Could it be mistaken aircraft? Or is someone, or something, looking in on us? 
In UFOs in wartime, what they didn't want you to know, Mac Maloney chronicles centuries of these incredible sightings and tries to solve the puzzle of why so many UFOs are seen while humanity is at war. Read about the scare ships, the ghost planes, and the ghost rockets, alien giants in the jungles of Vietnam, UFOs controlling our ICBM bases, dogfights with flying saucers during the Gulf War, and more. 300 pages of unbelievable stories, along with many startling photographs. That's UFOs in Wartime, What They Didn't Want You to Know, by Mac Maloney. On sale at your local bookstore or on Amazon.com. X-Files, a very special rendition of the show tonight. Commander Cobra here uh, taking the helm as JJ and Mac and the rest of the gang are off on a special secret mission. Not a lot of details. It is Switch and I in the two-ship formation driving uh, to success and hopefully a successful mission, which Mac told us earlier in our specially sealed orders to uh, complete the show. And try not to break anything expensive. Switch, what do you think? Uh, are we uh, fulfilling our uh, mission obligations I, here? I think so, but I wonder if they're actually off on some kind of a junket that the uh, Mac Maloney's Military X-Files is paying for. Some tomato, <clears throat> tomato, okay? Composite, <laughs> composite. And I say that because the other person that is with us tonight, uh, <laughs> uh, who's with us, uh, who can explain the difference between mission, special secret mission, and junket, and do it with such eloquence is Mr. Ross Sharp. <clears throat> Ross, how are you? I am delighted to be with you and Switch and uh, the incredible producer, Bill, over there. Um, uh, and I want to know what's going on in uh, mil uh, with regard to a certain Mr. Maloney and JJ disappearing off into the weeds, so to speak. But I'm wondering well, if this is some kind of reaction switch. Because <clears throat> switch will probably give a good reaction because uh, I have been gone and I'm gone a couple times uh, out of the, the, the month on uh, required uh, secret missions for my other job, the uh, the day job, as we'd like to say. Um, one one has had a couple occasions where he's uh, disappeared. What do you think, switch? Is this just some kind of a payback? Well, well, maybe they're they're kind of jealous. You get to go off on secret mission missions, so they want to have a secret mission also. Right. Well, the other part is is that there seems to be a, sometimes a certain um, um, sign or display of affection when I'm gone uh, by uh, people that come on and want to know where I am or emails that are sent to Mac. So please flood us with Mac, uh, JJ. Never do this again. Uh, <laughs> Cobra drove this thing practically into the waves, something like that, and we'll move forward. Well, we're very lucky to have a fringe report tonight, uh, and, and Switch does an incredible amount of uh, investigative work, research work. He's probably one of the, the smartest guys that I know uh, on doing the research and doing the hard work on that. What do you have for us tonight, Switch? Well, this is a. Uh, this took place. Uh, we don't have a lot of details, specific details like names and so forth, but uh, the Daily Mail came out with this uh, this report, <clears throat> and what it has to do with. We'll get a little more into detail, but uh, uh, 
the it was an RAF pilot. This is toward the end of World War II. He encountered kind of a classic UFO. Now we don't have a lot of description of it, but it's a, like a large metallic object, very classic. And what the way this came forth was there's a a scientist, and we don't have his name. He claimed that his grandfather was one of Churchill's bodyguards at the time when this incident took place. And uh, this comes from uh, declassified Ministry of Defense UFO files. And they were made available online by the National Archives. Uh, now, the, the witness to this, the experiencer, is not named in the file. But this, like I say, this took place uh, toward the end of World War II. It was an RAF reconnaissance plane returning from a mission. And it was either France or Germany. So, again, we don't have all the specifics that we would love to have. But uh, this, the, we are getting this out of the files. And uh, uh, the information surfaced when the, the grandson from Leicester wrote the government because uh, he had heard about this from his grandfather and he wanted to see if he could get any more specific information because uh, this, the, the, uh, his grandfather was supposed to have been present uh, when Eisenhower and Churchill actually discussed this incident. And uh, <clears throat> uh, so – and we'll, we'll get a little more specific as to what happened, but, but Eisenhower wanted to, to classify it. He said it would create panic. Uh, in the general population and destroy one's belief in the church. So what had, what had happened was uh, the pilot was near the English coastline when he was inter intercepted by a strange metallic object. Uh, now, there may be drawings in the archives or whatever, but we, we don't have them. Now, this thing... Uh, now again, this is this is uh, sometime in the early 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 mid 40s, uh, several years before Kenneth Arnold's famous sighting, before flying saucers were a topic in the uh, in the newspapers. Uh, the Foo Fighters. I don't know how how much people knew about the so-called Foo Fighters at the time. These strange objects that seemed to be pacing uh, well, that planes. Was, and, that was greatly classified, right, Ross? I mean, the yes. Foo Fighters stuff was never brought out. No, it was not. Um, as a matter of fact, there were. It, it was mixed up. Uh, there was disinformation uh, at this point in time because um, it was put about that uh, the Germans were using a new type of anti-aircraft uh, scare tactic. They called them scarecrow shells. And they were supposed to project um, sort of an image on the retina of an exploding uh, British aircraft to scare the bomber stream. And in fact... These weren't German anti-aircraft shells projecting an image. They were actually Lancasters and Halifaxes blowing up. Mm. So the there was you know they were told that this uh, was possibly just another type of, of scare tactic being done by the Germans. But um, it's strange that Switch should mention it was a reconnaissance aircraft uh, in the Daily Mail report, Mail report, which I read by the way, Switch. Um, it shows an image of uh, a mosquito um, PR-16, and it's highly likely to have been a mosquito that was followed by this UFO. So um, th that's extremely interesting in its own right as far as we're concerned. Right. And, uh, and of course, the Foo Fighters, when, they, when, when people started seeing them, everybody thought it was somebody else's aircraft or technology. And, of course, yeah. it was something else altogether, whatever that was. Well, it appears uh, to be because no, one, no one's been able to make claim of them on either side. All right. Yeah. And, oh, go ahead. 
No, I was just saying that, uh, yes, the Foo Fighters were regularly reported by uh, what we call main force aircraft, that is the Bomber Command uh, streams that were sent out almost nightly to attack uh, German targets in Europe. And the gunners uh, in the turrets of these Lancasters and uh, Halifaxes and Stirlings were regularly on a, on a very uh, high alert, and they would report these lights, which they were firmly convinced must be, you know, from um, the Axis powers. And uh, when when this uh, uh, when, the, when the plane was uh, intercepted, this thing started pacing it. it. It followed its course. It matched its speed. And it did that for a time. And then all of a sudden, it accelerated, took off, and disappeared in the distance. So uh, Churchill's people and Eisenhower's people, they, of course, you know, it, it's, it's like it is now. They tried to come up with some kind of a, a plausible explanation to make this sensible. And uh, they, there was a, a high degree of concern. Because they, they couldn't. I mean, they came up with the possibility of a missile, but the missile would have had to be moving too slow to keep pace with the plane. And the, the change in speed and, and the way it, it accelerated and went off into the distance, nothing made any sense. So uh, it, it, they, they realized that whatever the heck this was, was well beyond the capabilities of the time. So uh, Churchill stated that this incident should be classified for 50 years. And that a, a future prime minister should review it. So let's let's uh, let's let another prime minister a half a century from now try and figure this out. Now the uh, the, the scientist, his grandfather, did not really that the first time he actually talked about this incident was to his uh, daughter when she was nine years old, and and he died in 1973. So uh, apparently, it's not really stated how the grandson uh, found out about the the specifics, but. Uh, uh, he the the grandfather would occasionally uh, hint that uh, about the uh, uh, he kind of hint about the incident without actually talking about it that we might have uh, there might be flight technologies that are that are far superior to what may be possible hinting that there's something else out there now uh, the uh, no, switch let me let me grab yes. something real quick here yeah, sure. an, an interesting point that I wanted to bring up. In my mind, when I hear this, you're talking about uh, two men, uh, two people that are at the absolute pinnacle of trying to keep the world in uh, what I would consider the uh, the light or the wind column. Um, so there's a lot of uh, a substantial conflict that's going on here um, and things taking up their time. Um, Churchill, obviously, to me, one of the greatest prime ministers uh, of the UK, no doubt in my mind, and Eisenhower, which I consider a great military leader and to me a very, uh, um, very uh, good president as well, who has been rumored for years to have been involved in actually meeting extraterrestrials. Uh, he was responsible for uh, putting really putting together the manned space program in the United States, getting that uh, really organized and, and brought together uh, to move forward, uh, was there for the Sputnik launch. Um, obviously, we uh, I, I read the same article, and, and one of the things that's always attracted me to it is because uh, the uh, the mirror decided to use a uh, 
and rendition of the uh, reconnaissance mosquito with a very classical UFO uh, depiction uh, behind it uh, on there. Do you think that this plus the war was a formative uh, kind of uh, event that carries over later on to uh, Eisenhower when he had to make decisions? And I'm going to start with Ross before I come back to you, uh, Switch. Okay. Well, certainly this was an event that that had ramifications in that Churchill thought that it was so potentially devastating to public morale that these papers must be classified for a minimum of 50 years. Um, there are other um, strange phenomena that were reported by uh, Royal Air Force personnel uh, over the years. There have been uh, time compression or lapses. There have been definitely lights and, and unidentified flying objects. And it's interesting that now, for example, um, uh, crossing the pond to where we are, that um, the de Defence Department have actually now confirmed that leaked video of unidentified aerial phenomena is real. And they, there's, there are several uh, clips that are out there a uh, number of reports. Um, they're saying that unauthorized and or unidentified aircraft, a quote, have entered various military-controlled ranges and designated airspace in recent years. That's going to the Navy. Uh, that statement was made in 2019. Um, and later, of course, there's been some releases of the target video off the West Coast. But even so, it, it's strange that there's, there appears to be a cascade of either wink and a nod releases or drip-feeding stuff into the consciousness on both sides of the pond. As to whether we're being prepared for a very big announcement, I don't know. But it's interesting that the momentum seems to be building. I, Switch, what do you think? Because I agree with Ross to a great degree. Yes, and... Uh... But I, 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 as far as disclosure, I'm, I'm still, uh, I'm still skeptical. You know, they, uh, they, we, we get these, like you say, these little tidbits, and uh, that they, they actually get to a point where they say, well, yeah, you know what, uh, this is unidentified. We don't know what it is, and then that's it. Uh, there's there's all kinds of things out there. There's photographs, uh, legitimate photographs of the surface of Mars, not the CGI stuff, of, of stuff they've taken on various Mariner missions where you see things that look like trees and so forth. And there's no discussion about it. There's no – there's nothing official. So I, I, I don't know. I just think uh, – I don't know what – I, 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 it's almost like they think that if they just don't say too much about it, it'll go away or it, or it will maintain sort of an even uh, keel uh, of, of knowledge, of skepticism, of belief or whatever, and nothing will happen. But as, as far as, you know, the, these, these two men, I mean, if, if, this, if this incident is true, uh, it, it must have influenced their thinking. Uh, about for for later on and, and some of the decisions they made, I mean this is that's pretty uh, astounding that uh, you know that they were seeing these craft these uh, high tech craft during World War II and with no explanation, and even uh, in, in Whitehall uh, officials investigated the the claims and they, they tried to supposedly they tried to see if there was any record of this uh, conversation between Churchill and Eisenhower and. 
supposedly there wasn't. Uh, and, and interesting that an MOD official wrote in 1999 that prior to 1967, all UFO files were destroyed. <laughs> because, in, in quote, there was insufficient public interest in the subject to merit their permanent <laughs> retention. <laughs> so, that, tells you, that tells you that there's a duplicate file someplace when there's insufficient public attention to something that uh, seems to be um, very popular in almost every part of the culture. And I do want to make a quick side note because we will get emails about it. Uh, Switch did manage even in this show to bring up Keel. And I'm going to simply ask, is even Keel related to John? Uh, and you don't actually have to answer that on air. Um, <laughs> Ross, you wouldn't you wouldn't respect me if I didn't take that shot. I know. We, it was a cheap one, though, Commander. I, it was only below the hard deck for a couple seconds. I, know, I had yeah. to take the shot. Yeah. I had to yeah. take the shot. Well, if that were true, all, all the any files uh, in the World War II era would have been destroyed if it was true. And uh, a civil servant... Uh, tried, he said, to find out if that alleged conversation uh, between Churchill and Eisenhower was recorded anywhere, and uh, uh, it because the, uh, the the grandson said this was you know something important enough that should have been taken taken into account, should have been uh, able to find somewhere. Uh, it, the, the Daily Mail uh, maintained that uh, it was known that Churchill was interested in UFOs, but they don't pr pursue it. Churchill died in 65, so certainly he knew about flying saucers and UFOs, but I don't know if they were saying that he was interested you know, around World War II or what particular decade that he, he had an interest in them. All right. I, and, I, hold on. I want to grab something here, Switch. Hold your uh, your place because this is something I brought up with Ross in the past in the show. Ross, we have made uh, uh, often uh, very positive comments about this. And I it's one of the things I, I, I truly love about the UK and the, and, the, and the whole Isles. There just seems to be a much more uh, – uh, a higher degree of comfortability, if that's actually a word, maybe I created a word tonight, with paranormal and English, Irish, uh, Celtic, uh, Anglo-Saxon culture. I don't know how else to describe it. And I don't think it's just – it also extends into Europe as well. Um, when when I talk to the Norse uh, people of that background, there just seems to be an, a, a much more a kinship to having phenomenon – a phenomena go on around you that doesn't uh, it, it it isn't upsetting or that maybe that's not the right way to put it it doesn't seem to uh, strike a really strange note you just it's it's kind of how it goes uh, it's it's part of the experience it's part of the of the ride here that we're all going through your thoughts um yeah absolutely true um it, it's it's part of that um uh, I put Anglo-Saxon slash Celtic uh, phenomenon, uh, the, the joint culture on the Isles uh, of Britain, uh, that you don't have to, to go very far to find yourself enmeshed in that. Right. I, had a good, I had a good friend of mine who, believe it or not, was a chaplain in the United States Air Force, and he'd been in Japan, and he and I um, were chatting one day, and he said that <clears throat> they were he was bringing his family over to England, and then they were driving to various places and heading up towards a spot just outside of Edinburgh uh, to take part in a Burns clan gathering, because they uh -huh. were part of the, sure. the Burns clan. 
And I said, oh, that's fine. Well, you must come and, and stay with us or at least call in and have a cup of tea um, at the uh, Shares Sharp, which at that stage was in the city of Derby, um, um, the headquarters for Rolls-Royce, of course. <laughs> and um, I, I said, what are your plans? He said, well, we're, I'm picking up this large um, uh, wagon, what we would call an estate uh, car, and the, the family of four, we're driving over to, to Bath and spending the night, and then we're driving north to get to Edinburgh, and uh, said we're taking in uh, Stonehenge and uh, Stratford-on-Avon, and then we'll call him for a cup of tea with you around about lunchtime, and then we'll continue on and drive to Edinburgh. And there was this silence on the end of the line from me, and he said, what, what's wrong? I said, well, uh, back of the uh, envelope calculations, the distance from Bath to Edinburgh is around about 390 miles. Yeah. I said, um, you're going southwest to north east you're not going to make it there, there aren't at that stage anyway uh, some of the the motorway networks that we call them you know the the highways to actually support that travel and you're making stops in tourist spots i said um we'll have a bedroom ready for you or two bedrooms ready for you uh so he said no we'll make it he said well, we'll get there just after lunch so we prepared a casserole and put it in the oven, and there was this doorbell rang at about 7 o'clock at night, and there's the, this American family absolutely exhausted and bedraggled. And I just pointed up the stairs. The bathroom's there on the right. Uh, your, your rooms are uh, to the left of the, those two. And they came down after about 10 minutes, and John said to me, how do you live it? He said, you, he said it's like driving through treacle. I said, yeah, that's right. It's the accumulated um, history of thousands of years densely packed into a small island, right? And that will ruin your travel plans. <laughs> There's no way about it. And it is. I would recommend the English author, the late, great Sir Terry Pratchett, who I actually worked in the same building as at one stage. Didn't wow. know the man, but brilliant. And... If you read his stories, the Discworld series of novels, Lords and Ladies, about the elves, and it's a juxtaposition of the one realm with the other and so on and so forth. It's all interwoven and magic and everything else. And Discworld is a uh, flattened analogue for, for the world per se. And it's, it's just amazing that the amount, the sheer density of... Uh, history and, and psychic phenomena and everything else that's packed into that, that island. I agree. Switch, you were going to say something and I cut you off. So well, that, that's all right. It was, it was just one other little little thing in the report uh, that they mentioned and that they, they said in these newly released files uh, that the intelligence chiefs in 1957 were supposed to have taken uh, UFOs very seriously. So, and again, it's, it's, it just it doesn't give you much more information, but that's not hard to imagine because in, in a, uh, you know, earlier on, I think during the 50s in general, there still may have been a, uh, uh, you know, with, with the military and so forth, there still may have been even a, a little bit, uh, you know, for the public's uh, uh, 
view, uh, taking these things kind of seriously. Uh, Project Blue Book, of course, was up and running then, uh, but uh, uh, it was just kind of later on when uh, Blue Book kind of filtered out, and they did had the uh, the Condon Committee, uh, which was a kind of a farce, and uh, so. Uh, you, you kind of wonder, you know, during this this whole period of time, what was what's really been going on? You know, what how do, how has has officialdom, how have the military and so forth really been looking at the UFO problem, and as opposed to you know what uh, what the skeptics and the uh, the naysayers have have promoted? So well, uh, I I think the thing that's interesting about this particular article, there's a lot of things that that trigger my uh, my imagination with this one, or trigger my my thoughts. First of all, it kind of came out of nowhere when this article made the uh, made its appearance. There wasn't anything going on around it. Um, the next thing that you you bring up is it it shows a lineage going all the way back and two very important uh, uh, players on the world stage. Um, did they or did they not? Usually when there's something that's so absolutely not true, there's usually a, a very swift rebuttal. There's usually something very swift that comes out and says, you know, this didn't occur. You know, this is this didn't happen. That never occurred with this article. and It doesn't occur with a lot of the others that come up. And the other part is it just seems to punctuate all along the way that various world governments have – uh, and in this case, you know, you have a representation of two major uh, um, world governments uh, on this particular article, this particular piece, mm. have been involved looking at this and been involved at uh, uh, controlling the information, controlling the flow, controlling the things that are going on. Um, I think you can give a justifiable case at any point away about uh, the uh, morale of people, the security of people, uh, the causing of panic and, and, and all the things that are related on that. And here's the question I put to both of you. Do you think now in the age that we're the age of Mac Maloney's military, are we at a point where um, we have, uh, we, we just arrived at a point that, the announcement of the disclosure wouldn't uh, be of a concern to the to uh, to world governments right now, or is it being used? It's a it's a kind of a binary question. Is it being used? The information being used, the possibility being used, just as another way to uh, to uh, kind of control the conversation. Rush, you want to go first, or do you want me to go first? <clears throat> okay, from a, a UK perspective. Um, many people forget that um, we're smaller than the state of Wyoming. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's a small place, like 700 miles from top to bottom, you know, um, uh, about 250 miles, 300 miles wide at the base of the apex. Um, a lot of people, over 60 million people, packed in there. Uh, it's dense in uh, social psycho terms, as uh, you might say Isaac Asimov would say in the Foundation seri uh, series. Yep. Um, it, it's tight. The space is tight and it's hot. So you have to manage public perceptions carefully. Um, I think it's possible that, that given the fact that uh, the various social pressures being put on us you know, through um, 
shall we say, medical developments and other things, um, and the breakup of the uh, 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 European Union, shall we say, it, it's possible that you could sneak out, shall we say, a major announcement, and it not make the same impact yeah. as it would have done only, say, 18 months ago? Yeah. That's a very good point. What do you think, Switch? What's your take? Well, yeah, I think nowadays it would almost be, in some in some quarters, it would be almost like uh, blasé. But uh, I've never, you know, I think it was, was it the Brookings report that came out years ago that said, uh, well, we need to uh, keep this quiet. I believe uh, it's Rand. I think it's the Rand, 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 okay. Rand stuff. All right. And uh, see, I've, I've never never bought that. I think that if even if uh, decades ago we we said, "Hey, guess what? There's aliens and they're visiting us," uh, I think people would have a lot of people would have taken it in stride. Uh, some people, because of their religious convictions, would have would have not believed it or believed it and, and believed that it might be some kind of a demonic force. Uh, uh, people, uh, uh, some people would embrace it. I just don't think it would have ever created the panic that they thought it would. Uh, now, of course, if if these uh, aliens are up to no good, uh, the even if that's the case, the uh, the government is not going to admit that. Uh, oh, by the way, these guys are up to no good, and we have no control over it. That that part they would definitely keep secret. But uh, yeah, and especially today, I just. Uh, uh, you know, we, we've been saturated with uh, uh, pop culture, with uh, good aliens, bad aliens. Uh, yeah. uh, it's just – it just isn't that big of an issue. But uh, so I, I don't know. I, I See, I don't really know exactly what we're dealing with. I mean it's, it's not uh, – we're not strictly dealing with an ET presence, I, I think. There's, well, there's, there's much to, you know, John Keel, Jacques Vallée. Yeah, let me, let me let me – Throw a little more uh, chum into the water here. All right. To uh, to just to keep this conversation with you two going, <laughs> we have seen quite a few things going on in in the recent reporting that have probably occurred over the last decade. If we look at now, we are going from the time of a report of um, quote unquote drones or some kind of UAP. Um, Going over a series of U.S. Navy ships off the coast of San Clemente, we talked about it recently on uh, yeah. on a Mac Mullins military X Files. Uh, the time of that coming out is, you know, someplace under 365 days, and where we had other events that occurred uh, with the carrier battle groups, uh, where the time for reporting to occurrence was a number of years. Um, I contend this that some of the materials, some of the uh, contacts that are happening is advanced technology that we are controlling. Um, when I say we, I'm going to use the Royal We, uh, no pun intended, Ross. Um, yeah. we're, we're, I'm using the Royal We that someone has it. I don't think if uh, the, uh, the the Chinese, the Communist Chinese or the Russians were flying over our carrier our battle groups or flying over our uh, Navy ships, that it would go, it'd be reported, and the activity would have been the same way. There's there's something very suspect to me about saying, hey, we don't know what this is, it's flying over. To me, that appears to be assessment drills, um, uh, deep dives into how close you can get to the ship, what the, what the ship is seeing, and it, it's organized to a great deal. Not everybody knows about it. That doesn't surprise me in the least. But I think it also is very convenient to take a playbook out of the 50s and 60s that the Air Force and the government used, the American Air Force and government used, and I'm pretty sure it applies on the U.K. side with the, the U.K. government and the RAF. Throw out 
a lot of UFO extraterrestrial stories mm. as part of the cover. Your thoughts? Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's, it's obviously a, a classic public relations scam. It's almost like, um, you know, uh, like the dog, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> yeah. It really is, you know. How how can we distract people? You know, how can we uh, massage the message to mix a metaphor? Lots of alliteration there, I know. Um, but classic. Thank you so much. Uh, it really is a case in point that, that there is enough evidence out there. I'm sure we all agree to that. Um, it's a case of just assembling the facts and packaging it in such a way as you do not have unintended consequences in a social manner. Steve, what do you think? Well, if uh, here's one thing that uh, I can speak for myself. Whatever, if I'm wrong about this disclosure, and they, they are forthcoming, I am still, <laughs> I'm the kind of guy that just uh, doesn't trust the government and a lot of the stuff that they put out, I I would be listen to I would listen to this and I would think, you know what, you're not telling us the whole truth. There's an angle. You're you're, you're pursuing an angle, right? Yes, you're. We're, we're, it's important to uh, keep the masses uh, happy and manipulated, and uh, and, to, and to allude something I, I said earlier that if if for any you know one of the reasons that they. I think that they haven't come forth with any of this is because whatever the hell's going on, they have absolutely no power or control over it. And that's what one one thing a government will not tell you is that, yeah, we've got this really, really strange stuff that's been going on since uh, the beginning of mankind, but we have absolutely no control over it. We can't uh, manipulate it. We can't stop it. We can't, you know, whatever. So, uh uh, I guess that would be my uh, – I'd be wondering, you know, like you well, say, what's the angle? What's really going on? Switch, the, 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 the government has said though a number of times now, um, and one of those recent uh, pieces that I sent around uh, Mac Maloney's Military X-Files staff uh, and, and, and hosts talks about a former uh, CIA uh, director – who is uh, in his description is talking about, you know, uh, a pilot. He was a Navy admiral and he's talking about a pilot that he knows that his aircraft uh, came to a stop at 40,000 feet uh, when he came and countered uh, with something. And he talked about this phenomenon. So there is a lot of uh, former uh, 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 heads of, of agencies and positions of power that are coming out and saying, we don't know what this is. Now, I don't buy that either any more than you do. Um, to me, there, there, there's an angle. It, as soon as you, at, with the track record that we have to date, come in and start confessing to me, you're confessing stuff because there's, some, there's something else really big behind the curtain. <laughs> I, I, I just, I, I, I don't completely go along with that. But I think it's a difference in tone that's and uh, in, in what has been said that is capturing a lot of people's attention and in, in getting us kind of thinking about this. Ross, what do you think? Um, I'll go with you on that. It's, 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 again, to use this, this phrase, it's massaging the message. You, you're going to have to employ a load of spin doctors to get this right because the, the, 
Um, there's a scepticism that, that Switch is, has brought up, and I don't blame him on that. There's a whole dollop of misinformation and uh, obfuscation and other large words around this. But once you actually dig down, once you've got this tame squirrel digging furiously, he will uncover that buried nut, right? And it's going to be out there. There's no doubt about it in one way or other. Switch, final thoughts here. Uh, final thoughts? Uh, I agree with Ross. Um, well, you can never go wrong with a statement like that. That's, that's, <laughs> you know, that, that statement was and we, was and we He's got the right accent for this, so that <laughs> always helps. So even if it's completely wrong, you feel good about the wrong message with well, a good Well, that was accent. part of my calculation. I said, I, I know if I agree with Ross, I'm home free. Yeah, <laughs> and, and, and you know that the mail is going to be good when you agree with Ross. There, there's <laughs> no doubt about that. <laughs> That's right. One You're last... taking me back to my BBC Wiltshire sound days here. Now. It's quite funny. <laughs> Again, another facet of the Ross Jewel has been, you know, has been uh, uncovered here with his BBC background, you know, masters uh, at at presenting uh, the information. But let me throw one last uh, um, piece into this. And it goes back to what I was talking about, uh, what I'm going to affectionately refer to as the Isles, Um, England, uh, Scotland, uh, Ireland, and the associated even smaller islands around don't forget Wales, uh, my sister. And, well, and, and Wales, pardon me. I, I, I always, I, and I, I almost made a horrible error by saying, well, that's part of England, but come on, oh, uh, command over. what is wrong with you? So that will generate mail. That will generate some interest. Um, here's my point, especially when you do consider Wales. Um, we have, and Switch over the years has shared many, many interesting accounts and stories. You have a part of the globe that has had some of the most interesting intersection of cultures. Um, you had what has been attributed to uh, to many historians the uh, the saving of the Western civilization record because of the monks uh, in Ireland being able to uh, maintain the records that were uh, not destroyed. You have Romans, uh, Saxons, Norse. Uh, that have all intersected. The French from the uh, mainland uh, centuries later uh, on the Norman side. It's, to me, one of the most um, fantastic kind of outcomes when you look at all, there's much tragedy there. I mean, there's much uh, human experience there. And there seems to be a very strong spiritual connection to all of this, to uh, to, to the entire paranormal. Ross, uh, your thought. Oh, switch you first. I, I, I no, think no, sign it said River Avon. Sorry. <laughs> no, I was just thinking when you when you mentioned Wales, uh, Wales is an, an incredible hot spot for oh. uh, high yeah. strangeness activity. Uh, we've done some on on Mac's show. Uh, uh, the the Sunderland family in, in northeast mm-hmm. Wales uh, had a whole series of bizarre events, and they were uh, some of them seemed to be physical where they interacted with these entities. Others were more in a dream state. Uh, one of the one of the little the little boy. Uh, uh, I can't think of his name, but uh, after a couple of years, they were you know, talking to the, the other children, and he uh, he they put him under regressive hypnosis. They had kind of forgotten about him because he didn't say anything. Uh, that uh, 
he uh, the, the aliens he drew looked exactly, Jenny Randall's found out, like the Kelly Hopkinsville aliens. <laughs> so, and then there was the Dovid in the Southwest a few years before. It's just phenomenal, the, the activity that's going on there. Well, in 74, the Bowen Mountains incident in Marionethshire in Wales. Uh, that was incredible. Loud noises, bright lights, and even uh, um, suggestions that there was a crash, almost a la Roswell, you know. And so <laughs> some tabloids jokingly referred to it as the Rose Welsh incident. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Rose Welsh incident. Yeah, um, yeah it, there's so much there in Wales. And I was saying this multi-layer things. I drove over the River Avon. Do you know what the word for a river is in Welsh? Afon. So I drove over the River River. The multi-layered <laughs> language. There's a place, I think, in Sussex. It's called Pen Ten Hill, right? Pen and ten are two ancient British and Saxon words for hill. So you've just gone by the hill, hill, hill. Yeah, so it's, it's the way that the, the cultures is so multi-layered and the experiences are too. And hopefully the release of any information that is needed will be dealt with sensitively. And I just hope it, it, uh, it comes out forthcoming. But as I've said in the past, I don't need uh, external confirmation for what mm. I've concluded and what I believe. And that brings us really to the end of a most interesting Macaloni's Military X-Files show. Gentlemen, I thank you very much. Uh, my guests uh, with me or my guest with us right now, I should say, is uh, Ross Sharp. And everyone knows Ross and is beloved on this program. Thank you, Ross, for joining us tonight. A great also, pleasure as always. Great to be, to be back go. with you, Ross. And, and John, you switch. I enjoy working with you. And we want to throw out uh, the uh, salute to the earlier part of the show with John Lilly, director and uh, managing director, I should say, and uh, chairman of the People's Mosquito and Bill Ramsey, the director of operations. Uh, it was great uh, first half of the show having them on. Always want to make sure we uh, round the horn here with important uh, people that we'd like an organization we'd like to recognize. And I really want to make a big effort on homes for our troops it is probably one of the best of the uh, uh, veteran-based uh, organizations that are out there building uh, purposefully built homes for the veterans to meet their needs and challenges that they have uh, because of the result of their time and service in the military it's a tremendous organization because when you donate to them more than 80 percent is going into the actual building of the home for our troops and their families. So when they're handed the keys, they're handed free and clear that structure. And it's a structure that's purposely built that supports them. And it really is, uh, to me, one of the greatest organizations out there. We've had them on the show. I should say Mac has had them on the show and they're wonderful folks. And uh, I'm in touch with them quite a bit by email and trying to support their uh, their different programs, homes for our troops. We have Sweetwater's Donuts, the official donut of the Macaloni Military X-Files, and uh, we are always cooking up something with them, no pun intended. And I am going to put one final throw to uh, Paran, Parnon, excuse me, Estates, that's P-A-R-N-O-N, Estates, E-S-T-A-T-E-S, dot com. Uh, they are hopefully going to become the official olive oil, Greek olive oil, 
true Greek olive oil of the Macmillan military exiles. We'll see how that works out over the coming uh, weeks and months. Gentlemen, and uh, to all, it's been a, a tremendous evening, and I'm getting ready to give the signal to break the formation, and I can't wait for the big debrief with uh, Juan Juan and Mac, of course, mm. uh, when we all get together to hear how we did and see if we get a chance to uh, do another mission switch. Yes, and find out all about their junket. Well, our secret mission, uh, as we, most of us prefer to use, junket has such a uh, ugly connotation to it that we don't uh, want to. <laughs> so for everybody at McMillan's Military X Files and our fantastic uh, uh, array of personalities that were with us tonight, I thank you very much for joining. Be safe, be well, and bye-bye. Bye. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.